Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Cass Muda to discuss his new book, The Far Right Today, published by Polity Press in 2019. The book focuses on what Muda identifies as the fourth wave of the post-war far right, whereas the third wave, roughly 1980 to 2000, included marginalized populist radical right parties, the fourth wave finds radical right parties normalized and mainstreamed all over the world to the extent that three of the world's largest democracies, India, the United States, and Brazil, have or have had radical right leaders. It is this normalization that Muda identifies as crucial to our understanding of the radical right around the globe and any possible responses available. Muda's done cutting-edge academic research for decades, but this particular book addresses a general audience, those who worry about the far right and follow the news, but suspect that they are not getting enough of the details to understand the extent of the threat or possible response. Muda successfully translates the research he and others have done for decades on the history, ideology, organization, causes, and consequences of the radical right to provide a nuanced overview of the challenges the far right poses to liberal democracies and suggestions for how to defend liberal democratic governments by asking what extent civil society, political parties, or state actors might respond. Kasmuda is Stanley Wade Shelton, UGAF professor in the School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Georgia, and a professor too in the Center for Research on Extremism at the University of Oslo. Cass is the author of Too Many Books to List, many of which focus on extremism and populism, and his work has been translated into 23 languages. In addition to the book we'll discuss today, The Far Right Today, he has a 2021 co-authored book with Sivan Hirsch Hoffler from Cambridge University Press on the Israeli settler movement. He is the host of Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music, and sports, and as author and fellow podcaster, I'm delighted to welcome Kasmuda to the New Books Network. Thanks for having me. So I interview uh, 
Well, let's start, actually. Let's start with how you came to write this particular book. You've been writing about extremism and populism for decades. What triggered the impulse to reach a more general audience at this particular moment in politics and your career? So I had been devoting most of my time, I would say, to non-academic work pretty much since 2016. I'd always written a lot of op-eds and done a lot of interviews for the media because I come from the Netherlands. And in the Netherlands and in Europe, the, the radical right had really always been an issue um, and heavily discussed in the public arena and the, the political arena. And so I was used to that. But when I moved to the U.S., this was much less the case. But then with 2016, first Brexit and then Trump, I felt, first of all, much more of an urgency. I also felt that there was much more of um, an interest, particularly in the U.S., but but globally, later Bolsonaro that made it an issue in, in Latin America. And so I had been doing that, but at the same time, I had published a book with uh, my friend uh, Cristobal Rovira Kaltwasser called Populism, A Very Short Introduction, um, which was about populism, which about which I had written for about four or five years extensively. And I got increasingly frustrated that, that the movements that really were far right or right-wing populist were now purely and exclusively debated under the concept of populism. And so that was, I think, the main reason why I wanted to write a book on the far right today, because... When I started writing about populism, 2014-15, I really started to write much more on it. There was a lot of left-wing populism around still in the south of Europe, in the south of America. But after 2016, almost all of the debate about populism was really about the radical right. And the radical right has issues that are problematic for democracy that go beyond populism. And so I wanted to shift that focus. I interview a lot of academics who write for other audiences, and they react really differently to the both constraints and freedoms of making the switch. And I'm, I'm wondering whether you enjoyed this kind of writing, or what the response to the book has been. You, you know, you had very ambitious goals for the book, which was to wake people up in a very particular way to a particular problem. And, and I'm wondering if you're satisfied with, with it. Well, so I've been doing public outreach for like 20 years. And along the way, I've learned that you don't, you don't actually change many minds. Um, at best, you provide ammunition for people who already were on your line and you help them to understand better um, what often either their senses were or their, or their partly informed opinions were. And, and so if that is all you do, I think that's fine. Um, my books don't sell much. Um, that's just the way that they're written. Um, but they're used, they're used a lot, I think. And so they're used by scholars. They're used by students. They're used by journalists, um, by people in think tanks, politicians. And this is it's kind of a quality versus quantity argument, but I mean, that's far too elitist to make. But that is what I right for more. If I can nuance the way that the media discuss the far right, the way that politicians discuss the far right, I think I've achieved 
quite a lot. And so I'm, I'm overall happy with the book. I also think that I learned a long time ago that public outreach for me is also therapeutic. Like I need to get it out. I need to feel that I've done my bit. I also kind of feel I'm paid by the people, to put it in, in popular of populist terms. Um, I should give something back. That's how I was really socialized um, in Europe. Uh, academics should be public intellectuals. Um, but yeah, so I feel good about the book in, in those terms. Now, at the moment, there's so many books about the far right. Many sell much more, right? And that's all fine. Um, I feel that I've done what I wanted to do and I've reached the people that I wanted to reach. I want to say that what I appreciated was the sort of precision and clarity about the terms. I don't study extremism or populism. And this was the feature of the book that allowed me to gain something that I've now used in both scholarship and in my teaching. And it was also the feature that encouraged me to offer this book to undergraduate students. You know, particularly relevant was the remarkably good chronology, the really crisp glossary of terms. Um, And so I, you know, I, everything that you've just said about who you reach really rings true to me, um, having read it. But since everybody listening hasn't, can you start us off with a definition of the far right and maybe also help us understand, the listeners understand, what is the relationship between the far right and populism? How do you define them and and what are the differences? So we first probably have to start with left versus right. Um, And left versus right is generally seen in terms of the market versus the state in socioeconomic terms. But I think that is a slightly dated understanding. Um, the under, my understanding of left versus right is more, a, I would say, a, a dynamic one and a, and a multidimensional one. And I believe that the Italian political philosopher, Norberto Bobbio, made a, a very good kind of meta um, definition and distinction. He says the the difference between left and right is really about um, equality. And um, the, the right believes that society is, is an equal, but that this is natural and that that is good and that the state should not interfere with that. Whereas the left believes that these inequalities are kind of created and, and either by capitalism or something else, and that they should be, they should be kind of um, equalized. Society should be equalized by an active state. Now, from that perspective, like so, I focus only on right movements here, but the far right is every right wing movement or ideology that doesn't sus- subscribe to liberal democracy. Now, specifically, the far right includes two major groups the extreme right, and the radical right. The extreme right is against democracy per se, which means against the combination of popular sovereignty and majority rule. So very simply stated, extreme right don't want people to elect their own leaders. And the best example of this is fascism. The radical right, on the other hand, believes that the people should elect their own leaders but has issues with specific aspects of liberal democracy, 
which often are things like minority rights, rule of law, and separation of powers. Now, finally, populism. Populism, as defined by, by me, is about a set of ideas in which society exists of two different groups that are homogenous and antagonistic, the pure people on the one side and the corrupt elite on the other, and that wants politics to be the political expression of what they call the general will of the people. And so they assume that the people are one. They have the same interests, the same values. Now, theoretically, populism is democratic because the general will of the people means that it is in line with majority rule. And as a consequence, populism fits more with the radical right than with the extreme right. And quite often the extreme right is actually elitist, where they think that virtue relates with a small elite and that the people are actually either corrupt or just weak. So populism is mostly restricted to the radical right. Not all radicals are populist, right? But the argument is that all populists would be radical. No, thank you. And um, no, and I found I found this terrific. I found myself using the definitions. It's an incredibly useful book for, for even the people who think they have a good definition of populism. Thank you. So the book's organized into 10 chapters. Yeah, no, I, and I, I, you know, I don't always say that. So I mean it. Um, the book's organized into 10 chapters. They cover the history of far-right movements since World War II, the ideologies that power these movements, how they're organized, the particular people who inspire and lead, the gendered nature of the movements, and, and how the far-right mobilizes through elections, demonstrations, and violence. And you also highlight the causes and consequences of the recent rise of the far-right summarizing the sort of the academic and the public debates, particularly that tension between economic anxiety and cultural backlash. Uh, you highlight the, the very different ways that um, Western democracies have tried to, res to respond. Uh, I, I kept thinking about the podcast. I saw all these different ways to approach your book. But in the end, I actually felt your conclusion was the most effective overview and so uh, and opened up the best discussion of what has happened with the far right since the book went to press. And I'm hoping we can talk a little bit about that as we go. So I'm going to ask you some questions about the end of the book. You present these 12 theses that define what you think is, is, is important and, and concerning about this fourth wave of radical uh, politics. So lots of journalism and some academic writing, you know, talks about the far right as if it's some sort of homogenous thing. But explain why your first claim is that the far right is extremely heterogeneous. And, and why does ideology matter so much in understanding this particular aspect of the movement? Yeah, so obviously the far right has always been um, heterogeneous and there have always been extreme right and radical right groups. But for much of the post-war period, for example, extreme right groups have been completely marginal. And so this would be like a few dozen neo-Nazis or skinheads somewhere in a town 
with very little reach outside of that locality or maybe a state or something. Um, what we have seen in what I've called the fourth wave, which started around 2000, is that we even now have neo-fascist parties and neo-Nazi parties being elected into parliament. For example, Golden Dawn, that was for a while in the parliament in Greece, and at the moment, our Slovakia, which is still in the parliament in Slovakia. Um, I think that's a fundamental change. Um, actually, within the literature on uh, radical right parties, in the 80s and 90s, there was kind of only one law, really, and that was that if a party was openly fascist or clearly linked to fascism, it couldn't be successful even though we did accept that the Italian social movement had been successful while being linked to it. That was kind of the only one. And so according to our literature on what I call the third wave, 1980 to 2000, that couldn't be a golden dawn. That couldn't be um, an our Slovakia. And so I think that's very important. I think the heterogeneity, though, is goes so much further. We have political parties that are four or five years old. We have political parties that are 50 years old. We have parties that have been in government three, four times. We have parties that have not even in uh, parliament. We have parties that have allegedly 180 million members, the BJP in India. And we have parties that have one member, statutory one member, the Party for Freedom in the Netherlands. Right? And so we have male leaders that are the typical machos. We have female leaders. Like the far right is often a cliche and and even worse, it's often like the far right is seen through the lens of one of the more marginal parts. Like it's the skinhead with the swastika tattoo. Whereas actually, if you talk about the far right in more relevant terms, it's mostly well-educated people in suits. Um, and so I think that that's very important. You have like far-right presidents who have taken over a mainstream party. You have far-right presidents who were elected on a party that barely had a connection to them, like Bolsonaro. Right? And then you have just your traditional political parties that have always been far-right. The diversity is enormous. And all of these have effects for certain aspects. Like sometimes they are the same, but for others, and particularly how you respond to them, obviously, you respond differently to a party of 180 million than to a party of, of one. So you mentioned mainstreamed, which is really one of the central theses of the book, is that is that this is the big change. So can you clarify how did this happen? How is it that in the third wave, these parties would have been outside somehow of the mainstream and unelectable and in the fourth wave, we now see this. And and are they taking are they taking positions? Are they treating? Is it about issues? It is about the positions they take. What what? Why why do we see this happening now? So when I talk about the mainstreaming of the far right, I talk about the mainstreaming of far right politics, which means that partly this is the mainstreaming of the issues and the frames and the ideology of the far right. And partly it's about the mainstreaming of the actors, the parties, the politicians. 
And they go together, but not always. There are countries where the far-right actors are still being ostracized. And yet, many of their issues have become adopted in slightly lighter versions by mainstream parties. There are other countries where the far-right is just one of the regular political parties. So mainstreaming, by and large, can go through two different ways. First, radical right parties can moderate and therefore come closer to the established and therefore mainstream parties. And we don't see that, actually. Um, Research shows that radical right parties have not moderated. But what we can also have is that it goes from the other side, that mainstream parties radicalize and move further to the right. And that is what has happened. Mainstream political parties, mostly of the right wing, but actually also quite often on the left wing or the center, have adopted not just the issues of the far right, like crime, corruption, immigration, but also the framing. Immigration is a threat. And and as a consequence, then, of course, when you adopt the framing, then you're going to adopt part of the policies. So this kind of blurring between the mainstream right-wing parties and the populist radical right parties, uh, this this increasing normalization, can you, you know, the book book is wide-ranging and it gives very uh, sharp and detailed Uh, descriptions of particular places, and you're not just focused on one country. That's kind of one of the benefits of the book for me. Can can you give just a couple of of more precise examples? And also, you know, since the book was published in 2019, do you see any change in the interplay among the radical and the more mainstream parties? So, I mean, examples... One of the things that we have seen is conservative parties becoming radical right. And the best examples of those are Fidesz in Hungary, of Viktor Orban, Law and Justice in Poland. But I would also argue the Republican Party in the US, um, Likud in Israel, and perhaps even the Conservative Party in Britain. Now, in all of these cases, because there is overlap between conservatism and the radical right, I mean, both are, for example, authoritarian in the sense of being very focused on law and order policies. Um, Both have something with the nation, although like traditionally conservative parties are not really nativist, um, but they do speak a lot about the nation. Now, what has happened over the last decades is that this social cultural part of the story, which is about identity, which is about security, that has become much more salient, much more dominant in politics in general, but particularly conservative parties. And they have adopted more and more nativist positions. Um, the problem often is that the bigger the party, right, the 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 bigger the bigger the diversity in it, and so of course the Republican Party is kind of by its own definition a big tent party, and so whenever I give examples of people who are radical right within that party, someone will come up with someone else who isn't right, and this has always been the case right, and the people said yeah but Steve King he's irrelevant right, 
Um, of course, that was impossible right. with Donald Trump, right? But initially, that argument was still like Donald Trump hijacked the Republican Party. I think that's a misunderstanding. I mean, Donald Trump was much more reflective of the base of the Republican Party than Mitch McConnell ever was. And we see that confirmed now. But it's not really that Trump actively changed the positions, the core positions of the Republican base. He, he, what he did is he kind of shifted the emphasis. He made like identity the key thing. Um, and of course, he was much more explicit and extreme in what he stated. But the difference with uh, someone like Ted Cruz is, is really not that big. Ted Cruz is also a radical right politician. Uh, many of them are in it. Um, so I think those are, those are good examples, but at the same time, they show how difficult it is empirically like to really make those distinctions because when exactly like was then that transformation point when the Republican Party went from conservative to radical right? And, and people often then say, well, if you can't like establish that clearly, then your categories don't work. But actually, that's not how it works. Like the world is a messy place and particularly political parties are compromises between different factions. And during a certain per- period, this faction might win. And I think that is the difference between a party like the Republican Party, for example, and let's say a traditional uh, a radical right party, like uh, what is now called the, the Rassemblement National, the National Rally in France. The National Rally in France has always been radical right. It was founded as a radical right party, maybe even extreme right party. And it had different leaders, always radical right. The Republican Party could go back to being a conservative party. I don't see that happen in the short run, but uh, it could happen. And and that gets to then to the question which any scholar who works on ideology and parties gets is, is do they really believe this? Is this not just strategy? Like, and I don't think anyone can answer that because we can't get into the head, heads of these politicians. But I also think that for most questions, it's completely irrelevant. What does it matter whether a party pretends to be conservative when its key policies and its key propaganda is nativism, authoritarianism, and populism? No, and I think actually one of the one of the best things about the book for me is that you don't try to say this is the year that is the end or the beginning. Let you you do create these waves, but the reason that you're doing it is by I think the way you do it is by pulling the lens back, by looking over a long period of time and saying, here's here are the differences in these uh, in these periods, and it's not that you can't find one example of something. It's that there's a tendency that there. What what I found most compelling about the book, like I'm in the United States, I'm inundated with the news about Donald Trump. There's a tendency to imagine that as an American issue or an American moment. But the book refuses, despite the cover, to allow anyone to think that this is disconnected from trends elsewhere, that this is more of an issue of liberal democracy than any particular one country. This isn't about Hungary or the United States. It's it's about all of these places. 
And I guess I'm wondering, the book came out in 2019. Uh, we all know we have to turn in these manuscripts ahead. Is once in, like from the vantage point of right now, is there, what would you, what would you want to add to the book or is there any sort of change that you would add? Does, or, or is everything that you've seen since then confirm what you already wrote or would it nuance or change it in any way? Well, I mean, two years is not too long for, a, for an academic book. Um, I mean, one of the worst things to write about contemporary things is that they always change. And, and to be honest, I mean, we just we just finished this book on the Israeli settler movement, and that was far worse because just by the time that we wanted to end it, the whole issue of annexation came out of nowhere. Um, and, and, and every time there was a new election in Israel again, and you were like, okay, but like, we need to take that in. And the publisher was just like, okay, you're already three years late. Let's do this. Right? Um, I had the same with this book. Uh, Trump had only just started, really, right? And so what do you say about Trump? How, how clear an example is he? Bolsonaro just came in. Was that a freak accident? Um, in many ways, his election was. But like, would this lead to a broader wave within Latin America? It seems so. There are now some movements there. Um, I don't think I would necessarily change that much yet. I think, so I get a lot of people asking the question, what will the fifth wave be? Which I never thought about, actually. Um, and and uh, theoretically, like it, it just has to be <laughs> something else. Um, but I think if there's anything, I, be, I sense that the far right has peaked. And the reason why I argue that it hasn't peaked electorally necessarily. I could still see in a few years, on average, the radical right, far right, doing even better than they have been doing over the last 10 years. I do believe that they have peaked politically in the sense that they have had disproportionate power. Um, They've punched above their weight because they were new, they took the establishment by surprise, by shock, like both Brexit and Trump are very good examples. And the mainstream overcompensated. They made them too big. Um, they redefined the people as the supporters of the radical right. And they took pretty much all their issues on, ignored the other ones. And it becomes clear, partly through the pandemic, partly through all kind of environmental destruction, partly through all kind of other things, that there are a lot of other issues that the vast majority of people are actually more concerned with, from education to housing to public health. And the more we will speak about these issues, the less impact the, the far right will have because they don't have much to add on those issues. They just have the same type of narrative on it. But as long as you speak about crime and about morality and about immigration and identity, you'll speak with them and they will have a very clear stand, actually a far clearer stand than pretty much anyone else. So I would imagine that once I write the second edition and I update that that might be something I'm discussing. The other thing is, of course, certain transformations will be clearer. Like, I mean, 
a, a lot of this is it's still in flux. I don't know where the Conservative Party in Britain will be in five years. I don't know necessarily where the Republican Party will be. They might be back to conservatism. They might actually more actively embrace a multi-ethnic agenda. It's possible. Um, you, ca- you just can't say that. But that's the problem when you're in it. Like, you don't know. Is it strategy? Was this just pure opportunism? Or are they actually fundamentally changing? No, that's great. So political scientists are often concerned with party realignments or dealignments. And in the book, you conclude that the rise of populist radical right is about de-alignment, not realignment. So would you briefly explain the difference and and say a little bit more about well, why that would matter, that distinction would matter so much, and why you come down on the side of, of de-alignment? Yeah, so de-alignment pretty much means that voters in particular um, get like detach from the political parties that they have supported, which we generally refer to as the mainstream parties. And this is a process that has been taking place for uh, at least five decades. I mean, roughly since the late 60s, early 70s, as a consequence of various um, economic and social changes, most notably um, higher education levels, um, change from the industrial sector to the tertiary service sector, different gender roles, um, multicultural society, different issues. We see more and more people who don't feel particularly attached to their old party. Now, Realignment happens when they create a new attachment to a different party. Be they an other mainstream party or be they a new radical party, we do see we do see uh, realignment. Like there, there is a core that has stick that has stuck with radical right parties since the nineteen nineties, but a large and I would argue much larger group, is so far mostly voting for the far right temporarily. Or, and that's the other thing that you see, particularly within the U.S. context, you see a shift from positive identification, party identification to negative party identification, which means that you no longer attach yourself to a party because you like it, but you attach yourself to a one party because you hate another one. Now, of course, negative partisanship works better in a two-party system. If you hate the Democrats, there's only one place to go. If you hate the Republicans, only one place to go. In the Netherlands, we have, uh, according to the last polls, we might have 18 parties in the next parliament. Um, Negative partisanship works worse there, except for populists. Because populists argue that it's one against all. That all the other parties, despite the fact that they say that they are like different, they're actually all the same. And only the populist is the one against them. And a, I think a significant part of the vote for the populist radical right is based on that negative partisanship. That doesn't mean that these people are not xenophobic. That doesn't mean that they're not concerned about immigration. But they people have been concerned about immigration for decades at an end. And they have been seen far more xenophobic and even racist 
um, than, than people are today. But they have been busy with different issues. And, and so negative partisanship is, is something where, that keeps people floating. And I think that as this part in particular, which now, because they hate the other parties on issues like identity and whatever, right, they might shift to yet another party if we're starting to talk about socioeconomic issues. So we don't see too much evidence of that, of that realignment. Now, of course, as, as a political scientist, and I'm not the most quantity type, but we have to we have to acknowledge that we have very poor data. Like we we have very little panel data. We don't follow people the same people across elections, and so this is partly maybe we see less realignment than there actually is. Um, no, that's fascinating. Uh... A lot of the authors that I interview set aside gender, but you write on the far right as a gendered phenomenon. Uh, here in the U.S., we've just marked the passing of Rush Limbaugh, who used the term feminazi with abandon. Your analysis of gender, to me, gets to the layers of Limbaugh's term, this you know, you described this kind of toxic brew of traditionalism, hyper-masculine leaders, and what you call femonationalism. So I, I'm going to ask you, like, what does femonationalism mean? It, and why is gender such an important lens for understanding the far right? Yeah, so I think that this is something that um, I have to credit also my wife, who is a colleague of mine and who teaches a lot on, on gender and has helped me understand uh, much more of the literature. In my 2007 book, which was a, a very academic book, Populist Radical Right Parties in Europe, I had a chapter, but I was actually more on sex. It wasn't women within the, the radical right. And to be very honest, I actually didn't really understand the difference between sex and gender at that point in time. And along the way, I had become much more interested in it because a lot of the stereotypes about the far right were just not right. And at the same time, I got a bit more, um, I would say, even annoyed by the fact that gender is almost is very often just limited to women and to femininity. And it is interesting because actually one of the reasons why gender is so important to the far right is the far right on average has two male voters for every female voter. It has by far the largest gender gap in all electorates. Only green parties have a little bit similar one, but the other way around. And so if you have almost twice as many men voting for the far right than women, then, then that's not random. And it's across time, it's across parties, countries. But a lot of the literature then focuses on why are there so few women, which is very interesting because that actually sets the male as the norm, right? And so it's it's almost like why do women fail? Why? Whereas of course the question is, men are overrepresented, and why would men be overrepresented because of masculinity rather than femininity, right? And so. I think particularly that aspect, the focus on masculinity is something that we are, we're completely lacking in the literature. There's very little on it. And I think it is very important. At the same time, gender is, of course, cultured. And I guess this is a, a part, like I come from the Netherlands, which is nowhere near as emancipated as it thinks it is. 
but at the same time in northern europe like you have you have gender norms and you have particular positions on sexuality and and, and gay rights that are considered like crazy liberal in the US and are completely supported by the radical right and that's another thing and so I remember we had this populist called Pinfortine and he was flamboyantly gay and it confused like the heck out of like Americans it's like how can a gay person like be be radical right and be, because the whole issue of sexuality is is kind of post-political in, in the Dutch context. And he actually used his sexuality to justify his Islamophobia, which is something that we call homo-nationalism, homo where you by much use the issue of gay rights to make Islamophobic points. Point goes like this. We Westerners or Dutch right, believe in gay rights. We have achieved gay rights and they are now threatened by the import of a backward religion, a.k.a. Islam. The same we now have with so-called female nationalism. Argument is we we have gender equality, right? It is achieved, but it is being threatened by the barbaric Muslims. And this has become a major issue within Northern European radical right parties. Um, and it shows again how how cultural gender and sexuality are, and I think it is very important because yes, the vast majority of the radical right hold very traditional and very sexist views, and there is a lot of machismo, but there are also actually uh, female leaders who do not play up the stereotypical sexist ideal as Sarah Palin did. Like Marine Le Pen is not some kind of helpless woman that needs to be saved. She identifies as, as a lawyer, like she's strong. And we have what probably in a macho culture would be said, effeminate male leaders. Like I, I give the example in the book of the Sweden Democrat leader, Jamie Aukesson, who took a, a leave of absence as leader of the party for more than half a year to deal with mental health issues. Now, how many, how many examples do you know in the U.S. of a politician who takes leave of absence for mental health issues and then comes back, right? So uh, that is what fascinates me, and I think it says a lot about, like, uh, again, the national context in which the far right operates. Your book is not optimistic. Uh, you insist that no country is immune to far-right politics and that the far and extreme right are likely here to stay. But you you have a sort of an optimism. The book isn't satisfied with diagnosing the problem, but you also want to suggest some solutions. And you're very careful to say there's no one way to deal with the far right. And you say that we should be emphasizing strengthening liberal democracy. So I was wondering if you could say a little bit about what some of the possible approaches are, you know, how much should be done by institutional actors, uh, how much can be done by individuals, what, what, what's the, where's the, where's the optimism here? Yeah, I think this has to do with how I assess the problem. And so in the, in the most narrow sense, I'm not an anti-fascist because in the narrow sense, an anti-fascist just wants to defeat fascism. 
And I'm a liberal Democrat, and I want to strengthen liberal democracy. And my argument is, if I beat the fascist, like literally or, or, um, <clears throat> or not, I still have a liberal democracy in crisis. And yet, if I actually make people support liberal democracy more, they will have less um, need for populism or the far right. Now, I, my key argument, I would say, is that the far right has become so disproportionately influential because of an ideological vacuum at the heart of liberal democracy. Um, the ideology is out of politics in many ways, and it has been for a long time. The Social Democrats kind of gave up on an ideological narrative in the mid-1990s or early 1990s. The center-right, although being successful, has done the same as far as they have ideologies, mostly stolen from the radical right by now. Now, you might get by on pragmatism if everything goes well. But if you're in a crisis, you want to know why you're hurting. You want to know why you need to pay a price. And whether these are real crises or just perceived or manipulated crises, we're now in the fourth crisis of the new century. Right. We had 9-11, we had the Great Recession, we had the so-called refugee crisis, and now we have the pandemic. Right. Crisis after crisis after crisis. And arguments as Tina arguments, there is no alternative, are, are not cutting it. Right. And so we need a narrative. We need a, a positive, integrated ideological narrative about where we're going and what is crucial. And to me, the first part is liberal democracy. Liberal democracy is the best system to deal with the plurality of a society. It has problems. It isn't perfect. There are tensions between majority rule and minority rights, right? But, and so the first thing is you, you, you explain, A, what liberal democracy is, which a lot of politicians don't seem to get, and why it is better. And one of the things is, that a lot of, like, I think what many politicians, and to, to be honest, I think a lot of academics don't fully understand, is the importance of ideology and of terminology. Agreed. Like, political, political struggle is over what certain terms mean. So look at freedom of speech, right? Freedom of speech was a liberal concept for decades at an end. It has become completely captured by the right and particularly the far right, which have redefined the term in the meantime. When they speak about freedom of speech, they don't speak about protecting the individual against the state. No, it's now against critique from someone else. Right? That's a, in a Gramscian understanding of politics. Right? That is how you get power and hegemony. It is by changing the culture and I think the left in particular, but increasingly liberal Democrats are losing that. It doesn't mean that the far right has, has captured it in terms of real power. We still have, and even Trump has not changed almost anything, both in the US or in the world. We still have a liberal democratic world order. We still have liberal democratic states, institutions, 
and professed values, but we have very few ideological um, defenses of it, and we have very few green or social democratic or Christian democratic or libertarian ideologies of how to deal with all of the different things from from like globalization to multiculturalism to European integration to environment. And and that is where that's where the energy should go. And to be honest, I think the US is actually ironically further than most European countries, particularly on the left. I mean people like AOC, for example, have a profoundly ideological discourse that is vastly lacking in almost all European countries. Is there a liberal democratic leader that, besides AOC, who strikes you as being able to explain what liberal democracy is and why it is the the better way to address the public's problems? Who, who out there is doing this well? No, I, I don't directly have one. Um, but it's in part because we, we just don't have a discussion about what the system should really be. There is an understanding that we all support democracy and that we all have the same understanding of what democracy is. And, and it, that is, is not the case and had never has been the case. Like I think in one thing that I am actually more optimistic perhaps than other people, because let's face it, the, the real uh, coterie industry was the end of democracy and the end of liberalism books um, over the last uh, four or five years. I don't believe in that at all. I actually think that people are much more tolerant than they were. I think to a certain extent, people are more liberal democratic than they've ever been because liberal democracy is about tolerance of others. Right? And sure, we see in certain polls that there is a lack or a dip in, in satisfaction with democracy and perhaps even um, with, um, with support for it. But I think that's in part because we have higher expectations these days. And, and I think that is in part our problem. People are what they call, <clears throat> they're better educated, but they're also more um, self-confident. And like in technical terms, this is called political efficacy, which means that you feel that you're, you are capable of making the political decisions for yourself. And so, in fact, today, citizens behave much more in line with the great writings on democracy of philosophers than they have ever done. They are much more independent. They make their own decisions. But that makes them also more difficult to deal with, and it makes them more volatile. I don't think that's problematic, right? But you can make it a problem if if you decontextualize it. What you've just handed this book in on Israel and the settler movement. What what what's your next project? What are you working on right now? Oh, I always get these questions from journalists. I would I would have imagined that a fellow academic would understand that like we we need some time. We don't write books every year. Um, to be honest, I don't work on anything. I, I'm oh just... no, you don't have to be writing it. I think <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm surviving. No, I'm sorry. I, I I'm more mean. Like what? What? Are, yeah. Um, so, <laughs> um, I, no, true, true that. So concretely, uh, I actually work on three different book projects. Um, 
One is together with uh, several colleagues, um, which is on the youth movements of far-right parties. Um, we know very little about them, actually. And what we want to figure out is who is, is active in them, um, what is the relationship between the youth branch and, and the mother party, um, and how do they socialize the leaders of tomorrow? Um, I'm writing, well, I'm not writing, I'm researching the successor to my 2007 book on populist radical right parties in Europe. It's pretty much the same book. However, that book was still largely about the third wave. This book will be about the 21st century, about the fourth wave, but from a purely academic um, point of view and, and what challenges that also kind of <clears throat> brings to, to the study of it. And then my long-term project um, is actually a book about the transformation of European politics, particularly party politics, in which the rise of populism is only one part of the story. It looks at turnout. It looks at um, ideology. It looks just at the change in society. And the goal of that book, which won't be overly original in terms of the analysis, I would imagine, but it's about just see showing to particularly politicians, but also journalists and, and other opinion uh, makers, is to show that these are very long structural phenomena that have ex that explain why our politics is more volatile today, and you have larger coalitions, and and that we rather than fight that or judge it as something bad is that we just have to accept that this is the case and find ways to make liberal democracy work. Because I, I honestly still believe that most of the crisis of democracy is one that, that we from the mainstream have talked us into. Um, if you objectively look at how countries are functioning today, then there has been a very small period in world history where it perhaps was better than it is today with all the problems that we have. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. The book is The Far Right Today, uh, published by Polity Press in 2019. We'll have links on the show page to everything we've mentioned. Thanks so much for joining me today, Kath. Yeah, it was my pleasure.